If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up to the New Testament book of Galatians. Just last week, we started a new series. Uh, We're going to work our way through this book, which is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to these churches in a region called Galatia. It was part of the Roman Empire at the time. And this letter, uh, along with the book of Romans, maybe more than, than any other books in the New Testament, really focus in with, with laser-like clarity on the central message of the Bible, which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we, we are exposed to a lot of messages in our lives. We're inundated with messages constantly from all different people uh, telling us this and that. And, and uh, you know, some of those messages are important and so many of them are so trivial. And, you know, we have to kind of sort through all this and just message after message every day. And what Galatians is telling us is that of all the messages you and I might hear and of all of the ideas, the issues that we might discuss, no other message comes close to comparing to the glory that is the beauty and the gravity, the weightiness, the seriousness of the gospel of Jesus. This good news of how Jesus frees us from bondage to sin and enables us to live in life-giving relationship with the God who made us. And last time, we saw that the reason Paul's writing this letter is he's received some news that has really shocked him. Uh, He uses the word astonished. And what he's heard that's got him so worked up is that these Galatians... These people to whom he had proclaimed this good news of Jesus, this gospel, um, and they had responded positively, they were now considering basically trading that message in for a different message and staking their lives on a very different message that instead of simply trusting in Jesus fully, and all that he accomplished through the cross and his resurrection and all that he's promised, instead of staking their lives solely on Jesus and his merit, they were now thinking, people were telling them that they needed instead to keep all of the laws contained in the Old Testament, the old covenant that God had made with Israel, or what we call the law of Moses. And Paul is absolutely astonished, that's his word, flabbergasted, appalled. You could put a lot of words in there. And what's astonishing him is that anybody who actually understands the gospel would even consider trading that in for another message. Because there is no other gospel. There is no other gospel. And if you try to add something to it. If you take the gospel of Jesus 
and all that he's accomplished for us, and you try to add something to it, like law-keeping, you don't wind up with a better gospel. You wind up with nothing, absolutely nothing that's good news. Or let me put it another way, okay? This is, this is so significant. If you try to trust in something in addition to Jesus in order to gain approval with God, know that God is pleased with you, know that God accepts you. If you put your trust in something in addition to Jesus, you wind up putting your trust in something other than Jesus. Either either Jesus obtains for you God's approval by what he does, or you try to obtain it for yourself by what you do. These are two completely different paths going in two different directions, and you can't mix them. You can't walk in both directions at the same time. And the thing that's got Paul so worked up here is that what's at stake in which path you're on, what's at stake is enormous. It is the difference between eternal life or eternal death. It's the difference between God's approval and God's judgment. It's the difference between everlasting joy versus everlasting misery. And then something else that's at stake that's even greater is it's the difference between honoring Jesus fully because he and his work are all sufficient or effectively dishonoring Jesus, demeaning his glory because you believe he and his work are not enough. You've got to add something to what he did in order to really experience God's approval. So it really matters. And Paul, and if we could have seen him writing or dictating this letter, I have a feeling the veins in his head were kind of popping out in his, because this is huge. This is so big. It really matters that we get the gospel right. It matters that we believe the genuine gospel and that we share the genuine gospel because of what's at stake. It matters so much that we get it right. Okay, well, the question is, how do we know that Paul got it right? How do we know that? Because, see, there were some people who were claiming he didn't. He didn't get it right. Some people had come to the Galatian churches, and uh, they wanted to set those people straight. They wanted to set them straight about what God really wants. And basically, what God really wants, from their perspective... What they were saying is what God really wants is for you to obey the Old Testament law. So in order to convince the Galatians to do that, hey, you guys, you guys want to please God? You got to get on board with this keep, keeping the law thing. In order to convince them of that, they've got to convince them that Paul's wrong. So they were saying things like, eh, you know, Paul, not really an apostle. 
At least not, not like Peter and John and those guys are apostles. You know, Paul's kind of late to the party here. He wasn't following Jesus during his earthly ministry. No, he, you know, he, didn't, he didn't come around until after Jesus died, buried, and was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. So, and what they're meaning by that is, look, Paul doesn't have any more authority than the rest of us to tell you what the gospel is. Uh, so, so don't take his word for it. We'll tell you what the gospel is because we got the gospel from the real apostles and, and we're not the ones who changed it. Paul's the one who changed it. See, because uh, he wanted to make it easier for the Gentiles to accept it. Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Um, you know, they didn't want to have to follow the law, the Old Testament law. And so Paul said, oh, okay, because he wants to please them. And so he just said, well, yeah, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust him, that, that's enough. You don't need to do this other stuff. And yeah, the, yeah, But we're telling you, no, that's not good enough. No, you've got to obey the law if you want God's full approval. So that's what Paul is dealing with in this letter. He's not only got to defend the message, he's got to defend the messenger himself. That he's reliable, that he got it right. And here's, here's the thing. If, if he got it right, then the gospel he proclaims is the one and only gospel, as it says in Romans 1.16, is the power of God for the salvation of whom? Everyone who believes. If he got it right, that's the only gospel. And this alternative, well, Jesus plus keeping the rules, that's a worthless counterfeit that has no power to save anybody. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, this is interesting. You know, there's a conflict 2,000 years ago between Paul and these other guys. You know, well, so what? What's that got to do with me? Well, here's why it matters for us. Because the message that Paul preached is the same message contained throughout the New Testament. Okay, so his gospel and the other New Testament writers' gospel, it's the same gospel. So if Paul got it wrong then the whole New Testament is wrong. And you can't, you can't trust it. If he got it wrong, the whole New Testament is wrong. Well, isn't that exactly what many people claim today? They say you cannot take the Bible seriously. You can't trust what it says about Jesus, about the gospel, because, you know, after all, the church just developed this message over many, many years and changed it and modified it. And frankly, it's all just a bunch of religious opinion anyway. Certainly not a message from God. That's a very common position today. So, Paul here is going to talk about where this where the message he proclaimed came from, where he got it. And what he says about that, 
what he says about where he got his message, that is relevant for anybody who's wondering this. Is this message worthy of my confidence? Is the New Testament message, is the gospel a message worthy of my confidence? And we're going to see what he says about that, okay? Now, if it concerns you um, that we're going to be looking at a book of the Bible for evidence on the reliability of the Bible, and that sounds like circular reasoning, well, you just need to know that this particular book, the book of Galatians, is regarded even by skeptical scholars as a genuine letter from the Apostle Paul, written within a decade and a half, two decades of Christ's death. So you don't have to assume that what we're about to read is inspired by God to know that it's, it's at least a reliable record of what the real Apostle Paul thought and said. Okay? So if that's as far as you want to go, fine. This is what Paul actually said. All right, so Galatians 1, pick it up at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, he's talking about God, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him, proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. And the obvious implication is he immediately began to proclaim among the nations, the Gentiles, the, what Christ had given him. And then I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said. So this is what he was doing. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So don't miss it. Paul claims very directly that he got his message. He got the gospel that he preached straight from Jesus. He didn't make it up. He didn't figure it out. He didn't get it from any other person, including any other apostle. No, he says, God revealed it to me through a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. Now, obviously, you might choose not to believe that claim, but you have to see that that's what he's claiming. Okay, so whatever conclusion you come to, you've got to account for this. 
Paul said the way he got his message was that Jesus revealed it to him. That's the claim. So you've got to account for that somehow. The problem is, there are many people who seem to think that they don't need an explanation for that because it's just flat out obvious to them that it can't be true. And the way they think is they think like this. Well, not believing God, that's rational. Faith of any kind, including faith in Jesus, is irrational. Therefore, it just can't be true. But that's not true. Okay, this, this is a... Um, a strong misconception that's just out there everywhere. I mean, it's all over the internet. Yeah, it's just, this is, this is the idea that not believing in God is rational, believing in God is irrational, as if one is based solely on obvious evidence and the other one's based solely on, you know, faith, just believe. The fact is, both points of view, both points of view are built on a set of beliefs. They are two different belief sets, and the question is, which set of beliefs best explains all of the evidence, including the evidence we're looking at? Now, that's a huge topic, obviously, and if it's one you're wrestling with, good. It's a good one to wrestle with, and I've put on the bottom of your note sheet on the back uh, a few books that I highly recommend that you read. Even if you're personally not struggling with this issue, you are going to talk to people who are. And so those are good books. They are, they're not written, well, they're written for real people, you know, not just bearded, pipe-smoking people. Um, So, and if you have a beard and you smoke a pipe, I was not uh, saying you're not a real person. Okay. Got to be so careful. So those are good books on that topic. But for now, but for now, what I want to do is use what Paul says here uh, in chapter 1 of Galatians to answer this question. How can you and I be confident that the New Testament gospel is real? How can we be confident? We're just going to look at what he says about it. Okay, and I'll give you two reasons based on what he says in chapter 1, including some things that we looked at last time, but I'm going to refer to them. This time. We can be confident that the New Testament gospel is real because it's based on actual events, not speculation. Unlike other faiths, the Christian message, including its Old Testament foundations, is based on actual history, things that actually happened, not just religious or philosophical speculation. So, in other words, the exodus from Egypt, you know, if you go back and read the book of Exodus, this whole uh, Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, take them into the promised land, that actually happened. That's a real event. Um, the kingdoms of David, Solomon, and so on, those, those really existed. The Babylonian captivity, where the Babylonians came in and took Israelites off to captivity in Babylon, that that actually occurred. Jesus of Nazareth really lived. He really was executed, and he had hundreds of people within a few days claiming that they saw him alive. 
So these events are all supported by actual historical documents. And it's important to see that the writers of the New Testament, including Paul, never ask us simply to believe. They don't do that. That's one of the, you know, caricatures of Christianity. Well, just believe, turn your brain off and just believe. That's not true. They never say, just believe what we're telling you. You don't need evidence. You don't need reasons to believe. You don't need to think. Just take it on faith. Just take my word for it. They don't do that. Instead, what we have are passages like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Okay? What's the gospel based on? Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Look what he's saying. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and he appeared, and he was seen. These are events with eyewitnesses, most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote that. Why does he tell them that? Because you go ask them. Go talk to them. They're still walking around. So this is not an appeal to blind faith. Just believe. This is an appeal to believe based on events with actual witnesses who were there and could say, yeah, yeah, that happened. That really did happen. These are reasons to believe. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, then you have to take seriously what he said. You do. Because he's the only one that's ever done that. And we see this very same appeal to actual events here in Galatians. So back in verse 1, Paul had said this, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who did what? Raised him from the dead. There you go. Right away, he refers to an event, the resurrection. Verse 4, Jesus gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What's he talking about? crucifixion. So right away, two events with eyewitness support right at the core of the gospel message. Same story with Paul's encounter with Jesus. What what he says in verse 12, he refers to it as this revelation of Jesus Christ. He's referring to an actual event. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Here we have the story. Now as Saul, that's what he was called before he became a Christian. Now Saul went on his way. He approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Go to verse seven. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Why? Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. This was not some private inner experience that Paul had when he was all by himself somewhere in a dark closet. 
This was an actual event that witnesses could verify. So again and again and again, Paul says, believe the gospel, not because it's philosophically profound, not because it's spiritually insightful, it is, or because, you know, he experienced some kind of mystical inner enlightenment. That's not what it says. Paul says, believe it because it's true. Believe it because it's based on things that actually happen. You know what the difference between good news and good advice is? Go like this. Yeah, there's a difference, right? Good advice. People give you opinions. They tell you, you know, how to raise your children, even though they don't have any. Or they give you advice, and you think, okay, well, that's all right. The gospel's not good advice. It's good news. What's good news? Good news tells you about something that happened. Or it's going to happen. And it's, it's, you know... It's not, it's not advice you, you take or leave. It's like, this is actually good news. This, this is based on something that happened. That's what the gospel is. It's an announcement. It's an announcement of things that Jesus did for us. He really did come into this world. He really did die on a cross to set us free from our sins And he really did rise from the dead. Now, if those things did not happen, the whole thing is bogus. And quit wasting your time. But if they did happen, then the gospel is the most important message you will ever hear And how you respond to it is the most important choice you will ever make. Because it's based on things that Paul and the other writers say really happened. That's how you can be confident that the New Testament gospel is real. And one other reason Paul gives us is that the New Testament gospel is validated by Paul's own radical transformation. See, this is also history, and this also demands an explanation. Paul makes it very clear here that after Jesus appeared to him, he started doing what Jesus told him to do, namely preaching the gospel among the Gentiles. He went to Arabia, came back to Damascus. It's not until three years later that he finally went up to Jerusalem, met with the other apostles. Okay, why does this matter? What's the point? Well, because it supports his claim that he got his message, where? Straight from Jesus. He didn't get it from anybody else. And that means, this is really important given the climate today and people discussing this issue, this means there wasn't time for it to develop naturally. Skeptics want to claim that the gospel was developed by theologians and church officials, church councils over many, many, many years. The evidence is against that view. Here in one of Paul's earliest letters, he's saying that this is the only gospel he's ever had, the only gospel he's ever known, 
And he's been proclaiming it that way from the very beginning. So, that means he either got it the way he said he got it from God directly through Jesus, or he just made the whole thing up by himself right at the get-go. Okay, well, did he make it up? Well, here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with that. This message he was proclaiming was the exact opposite of the message he previously believed. You have to realize this. Paul didn't just disagree with the Christian message. Yeah, it's not like, oh yeah, you know, I know there's some guys running around saying, this Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead. I don't really buy it, but hey, to each his own. (laughs) No, he didn't just disagree with the message. He detested the message. He hated it. To him, it was blasphemy. And so he went on a mission, and everybody knew this. He was Christianity's fiercest opponent. And he was on a mission to stomp out the gospel and to shut those Christians down. He got permission to haul Christians off to jail. And he was there when Stephen was executed by stoning. And he was like, yes. Absolutely. And now... He's passionately proclaiming the very message he hated. Paul, the enemy of the gospel. All the Christians are afraid of him. And look what they're saying now. Hey, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. How how do you explain that? How do you explain it? This is not speculation. This is actually what happened. And why did Paul hate the gospel? Paul hated the gospel for the same reason that those who wanted to add law-keeping to the gospel, and we're telling the Galatians that, the same reason they hated it. And the same reason so many people hate it. Religious people. Why do they want to modify the gospel? Why do they hate the gospel as it is? Because they think it's too easy. It's too easy. Trusting in Jesus is not enough to gain God's approval. You've got to contribute your share. You've got to keep the law. And the better you keep the law, the more pleased God will be with you. That's what they were saying, and some of you still believe that. Some of you who have put your trust in Christ still think that if you keep God's rules better than you're keeping them now, he'll be more pleased with you. He will be, give you more approval, more acceptance, and you'll you know, come up in the rankings. Be right there next to me. No. <laughs> totally not true. Okay, totally. See, Paul was a Pharisee. You know what that means? That means he was completely sold out to this idea that the way you get God's approval is you earn it by your performance of his law, by scrupulously obeying every provision of the law down to the most minute precept. You know what he's saying now? (laughs) He's completely disavowing that whole approach. He's saying that's worthless. That doesn't work. You can't do it. 
And instead, he's claiming the only, one and only way to experience God's approval is to receive it as a gift by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Based on his obedience, not mine, based on his sacrifice, his resurrection for us. We trust in his performance, not our own. I want you to hear this in his own words. Look at Philippians 3, 5 through 9. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. (laughs) What's he mean by that? Folks, you don't get more Jewish than I was. I'm as Jewish as you can get. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You know, don't tell me I wasn't trying hard. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. See what he's saying? I was there. I was nailing it. Man, I was as Jewish as you come. I was trying as hard as anybody could try. There's nobody who did the law better than I did. And what's he say? But whatever gain I had under that approach, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing. This is the key. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. How do you know Christ Jesus, my Lord? For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, know Christ Jesus, my Lord, and be found in him, in union with him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, keeping the rules, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of from God, gift that depends on faith. See what he's saying? He's saying that being righteous, being right with God, is a gift we receive. It's not an attainment we achieve. That's a complete 180, people. That is a complete 180 from his previous position. He did a complete 180 regarding Jesus and the Christian message. What can possibly account for that? Well, to me, the only adequate explanation is that he believes what he's saying. That he's telling the truth. That he really did have an encounter with Jesus that transformed him. And if he is telling the truth, then the gospel he proclaimed is worthy of of your full confidence. And that means this. The same Jesus who changed Paul's life can change yours. The same Jesus, the same living Christ who took this zealous legalist who did not have the righteousness of God and transformed him into a man who knew God, who loved God, who had the righteousness of God, not because he earned it, because Jesus gave it to him. The same Jesus who took Paul from death to life, from darkness to light, from rejection to full approval. The same God who changed Paul from a guy trying to earn 
a verdict from the judge turned him into a child of God delighted with his heavenly father. It's so radical. The same Jesus who changed Paul's life can change yours. And all that he gave Paul, he can give you. He gave himself, Jesus did. He gave himself for our sins. He rose from the dead to give you a righteousness not of your own, a right standing with God, a being right with God, not of your own merit, that depends on you, that depends on your work, that depends on how hard you try, but a righteousness from God as a gift through faith in Christ. A gift that you simply receive by saying, okay, I believe you, I want it, please give it to me. I'm going to put my trust in Christ and not in my performance. If you today want God's approval and you don't know that you have it, you can have it today. By transferring your hope from yourself and your merit or lack thereof and putting it in Jesus alone. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now. And I can think of three, I'm just going to give us all a quiet moment, and I can think of three different ways you might want to use this moment prayerfully. Number one is if you have already received this gift from Christ, to just express gratitude, be thankful. And if you find yourself, as so many of us do, kind of defaulting back to, oh, it's all about me and what I got to do, and boy, I'm failing or I'm succeeding and it's all about me, no. Help him to put just daily hoping in Christ and what Christ can do in you and through you. That's one option. One, another option would be if today you realize you've never received God's approval, this gift of righteousness in Christ by receiving him, you can do that today. And what faith looks like in this is ask him. Ask him to do for you what he said he would do for you. Say, as best I know how, Lord, I want what you want to give me. I want your approval. I want your love. I want your acceptance. I want you. I want my life to become centered on you and not on me. And you ask him, and that, that begins that begins the process of God changing your life. You enter into a relationship with him, and nothing can take that away from you, and you gain his approval, and nothing you do can lose it. And then you begin to learn how to live in relationship with this God. And the third option would be to say, boy, this, this is really, uh, this is radical, and I'm not really sure what to do with it today. I'm, I'm interested, but I don't really know. And I would just suggest you pray and say, hey, God, um, I really want to know. And so help me know and lead me. Something like that. So I'm going to give you a quiet moment, and I just want to encourage you to use this moment to uh, call out to God. You, you just do it privately. God knows what you're thinking. And let's, let's all just take a moment and pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news 
of Jesus. Help us respond in a, in a way that will glorify you and will change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.